0: Welcome to Say What You Love, I'm Mark Titus. Today we're hanging out with Dr. Daniel Schindler from the University of Washington Alaska Salmon Program. I have been spending time with Dan Schindler since 2012 when we filmed The Breach and did an interview with him up at Lake Nurka where he's got a cabin throughout the summer with the University of Washington doing research on the world's biggest, last, largest, fully intact salmon system that we have. And Today, we dive into why this is the way it is, how do these salmon survive and thrive in this incredibly beautiful place, and what it really means to Dr. Schindler to be doing this work in the footsteps of his dad. If you're liking the podcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us a rating. It really helps put lift under our wings and get this thing going so we can bring you more episodes down the line here. Enjoy this time with Dan Schindler from the University of Washington. We'll see you next week. Enjoy the show.
1: How do you say what you love when the world
0: is burning down? How do you say what you love when pushes come to show, How do
1: you say what you love when things are upside down?
0: getting tough. Daniel Chandler welcome
1: thanks mark thanks for the invite to uh, chat with you today
0: absolutely I'm so excited to have you on here today uh, we do get to chat from time to time and uh, we have a lot of things in common Um well, mostly our love for Bristol Bay. Um, and I know you spend your winters here in Seattle working for the University of Washington, but you've spent your summers for the last several decades in a very unique place in Alaska, uh, the watershed of aforementioned Bristol Bay. Um, I know you spent decades there. Wh- why? How do you keep finding and firing your curiosity and your soul fire in that place? And can you paint a picture of what it's like for us?
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've been going up to Bristol Bay to work on those, uh, watersheds that support salmon, um, since 1997. And, um, the places, you know, the watersheds are, are remarkable. They are huge. They are diverse. They are remote, um, stunningly beautiful. And, um, remarkably what we call productive, which means they just produce an incredible number of animals and plants. Even though it's in the subarctic, it's cold most of the year. During that three to four-month growing season, the whole place just explodes into this biological frenzy of activity. And of course, salmon, sockeye salmon in particular, are really the 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 core activity that catches people's attention and what keeps me going back is the fact that you know as a scientist we're typically driven by our curiosity we get satisfaction out of figuring things out but i can't Mm. really figure all of bristol bay out bristol bay keeps surprising me every year You know, you go back up to start a new field season. You think you're going to do something that's pretty routine and see the same things you see every other year. And every year shows you something different. And it's either something that you've walked past before or uh, steered your boat past before, or it's something that simply hasn't happened before. So it's diverse. Mm -hmm. It continues to surprise us it's fascinating uh, scientifically. And of course it's, it's such an important place for producing salmon and all the fisheries they support.
0: I had a conversation with a good friend over the weekend um, who is not a fisherman. Uh, I am. And uh, he was asking, he kind of giving me some crap about it, you know, like why, why do you torment these poor beings? And um, it's a good question, you know, but one of the reasons is that, fascination with what's under the water that like you were intonating there about something different. Every time coming back, there's something that is uh, mysterious and that is a draw that keeps me coming back. And, you know, I think I told you um, before the uh, podcast here that we, uh, gosh, it's been 20 years in a row, been up to Alaska and this, this last year with COVID didn't get up. And I absolutely felt that. Uh, you mentioned salmon, of course, in Bristol Bay. Why is this region um, such a Valhalla for salmon, and sockeye salmon in particular?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, salmon are distributed throughout most of the North Pacific Basin. Um, and salmon, even though we often paint them as these very fragile creatures, are are very robust they're very good at colonizing and succeeding in all sorts of different habitat i mean to think that the same species of salmon that inhabits the yukon river has also flourished in central california for thousands and thousands of years tells you something about how adaptable these this that species or these species are um But why is Bristol Bay so unique? And it really, I think, is a fluke of the geography. You have a region that um, was uh, the the topography, the mountain ranges have been produced there over millions of years. And, of course, it's been heavily glaciated. So 20,000 years ago, Bristol Bay was under thousands of meters of ice. And as that ice moved back and forth and smoothed out those uh, mountain valleys, deposited a huge layer of gravel everywhere, um, it basically generated the salmon habitat that we see now. So the watersheds have all these gravels in them. They have um, uh, low gradient streams. The mountains aren't particularly high in Bristol Bay, so the, the rivers and the streams are pretty gradual which means the water doesn't just rip through the gravel. It percolates through the gravel. Um, And then you have all these big lakes. Those lakes were produced by the activity of glaciers. And in the case of sockeye salmon, most sockeye salmon um, spend one to two years in lakes before they head to the ocean. So you have these big, safe, stable lakes, stable from a biological standpoint, and then the rivers are pretty short. You know, the, the distance from the nursery lake to the uh, Bering Sea is, you know, typically tens of kilometers. And those rivers are still pretty um, cool. And then they dump into an ocean that's incredibly productive from a biological standpoint. Sure, it's cold most of the year, but again, during the summer, uh, the North Pacific, the Bering Sea the Gulf of Alaska, all explode into this intense season of biological growth. And all those plankton and the things the plankton feed, of course, become food for uh, for salmon, juvenile salmon, and eventually the salmon, as they get larger and fatten up to return to spawn. Mm-hmm. So it's really this, I um, hate to use the word perfect storm, but it's really this perfect set of conditions with a productive cool ocean heavily glaciated gradual watersheds lots of gravel you put climate on top of that it's not incredibly wet but it's not a desert so you get enough water to uh, keep the landscape wet keep the water the water running across the landscape and it's really that set of conditions that makes it so unique and so productive as we call it biologically um, in terms of Number of fish that come out of these watersheds and keep coming out of these watersheds.
0: I've had the great fortune of visiting you and your cohort um, where you work with the Alaska Fisheries Program through the University of Washington up in Bristol Bay. And it is, as you mentioned, a series of lakes uh, in the Wood Tick Chick State Park. It's absolutely stunning, as you say. And um, in the summer of 2018, if you recall, uh, that was the summer I came up and we were filming parts from the wild and we had uh, dinner with Mark Harmon who came up to go check out the place and is, you know, part part and parcel in the movie. Um, but that summer, one of the lakes, Lake Beverly, which usually hosts modest spawning, unexpectedly filled with fish. That summer, the lake accounted for an estimated 13% of the global sockeye catch that year in the bay. What's all that about?
1: Yeah, 2018 was a remarkable year for a bunch of reasons. Again, one of these surprises I mentioned earlier, um, you know, the number of sockeye salmon that returned to spawn in in Lake Beverly in 2018 could simply not have been imagined 20, 30 years ago. Um, It was one of these surprises. So why a surprise? And again, we don't fully understand it, but... um, You know, our prevailing thought, our prevailing uh, theory about what salmon habitat looks like is a bit like the sandwich between the landform, which is the mountains and the gravels. And then on top of that is the climate. And some years are cold, some years are warm, some years are wet, some years are dry, etc. And of course, the salmon are not encountering the climate directly, They're encountering the climate as it's filtered through local habitat conditions. And a dry, the the region may be dry in one year. And what that might do is make some parts of the landscape particularly profitable for salmon and other parts of the landscape not very good. And then in a wet year, because there's this interaction between the weather or the climate, and the landform. In those other years, for instance, a wet year, different parts of the landscape will do better than others. And then on top of that is just the stochastic, the random, uh, the random processes that are involved in any natural ecosystem. And what that means is there's a lot of lottery tickets that are bought out there, and if it's a piece of habitat that is tending to be more profitable in a given year, then it's more likely that a population that's spawning in that piece of habitat will draw a winning lottery ticket. Um, so in the case of Lake Beverly, you know, really the best explanation mm-hmm. that we have is that partially due to the interaction between the climate that year and the particular geological conditions in lake beverly and and hydrologic conditions plus the fact that the population just bought a bought a winning lottery ticket that year and survival was high those they were and that's survival all the way from eggs to juveniles to the smolts when they migrate from the lakes out into the ocean um survive a couple years in the ocean and then come back so they probably bought a couple lottery tickets in that year and as a result they hit the jackpot so to speak. And it just so happened it turned out to be a year when sockeye salmon in many other parts of the world just did not do very well. Um, 2018 was coming off of a series of particularly hot years in the Gulf of Alaska and uh, the North Pacific. And many of the other populations of sockeye salmon throughout their global range just did really poorly that year. But Lake Beverly was one that did amazingly well, and it picked up the slack for many of these other populations that that seemed to have busted that year. We can characterize what the statistical properties of salmon populations look like, and that is that they sort of boom and they bust, and all the booms and all the busts aren't occurring in the same places in the same years. Um, We aren't to the point where we can provide any reliable explanations for why one area blows up, and one area doesn't do so well. Um, so providing explanations is still tough. In fact, it involves a lot of BSing usually. But what we do know is that it's a phenomenon that characterizes a, a natural, properly functioning functioning uh, salmon ecosystem. It's this range of highs and lows across space and across time.
0: So I know that this is uh, a large portion of, of your work and it's certainly a large portion of uh, what you've been known for. And um, colloquially, it's uh, been called the portfolio effect. Um, could you explain kind of how you came up with that terminology?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a term that we stole from the financial literature, and we didn't actually steal it. People who had been wondering and concerned about loss of species diversity globally invoke the portfolio effect as a reason for wanting to conserve species. And the idea there, as in a financial investment portfolio, is that if you can't really predict the future, which means there's risk associated with the future, one of the best strategies for dealing with that is to diversify across a bunch of different things that um, reduce the risk to the unknowns of the future. So that was also applied to um, the idea of, lo- of loss of species. For instance, we see uh, patterns of hundreds, if not thousands, of species being lost in tropical rainforests as we cut and burn them, etc. And the concern there is how does the global ecosystem, or at least how is the tropical forest ecosystem going to function differently as you start losing species? We simply took that term this analogy of a portfolio and applied it to bristol bay sockeye salmon because they have some of the same um structures as a financial portfolio Um, any given river system within bristol bay so there's nine major rivers in bristol bay within each of those rivers is dozens if not hundreds of individual populations And each of those little populations, booms and busts, sort of marches to the tick of their own drum. Um, So those individual populations are a lot like individual stocks on the stock market. And then they aggregate up to the number of fish that return to an individual river, which might be like a mutual fund. And then all of the different rivers of Bristol Bay add up to a bigger number of fish that could be thought of much like your your overall investment um, for your retirement, for instance. So it's, it's an analogy that works because salmon populations are, are structured across this hierarchy from really fine-scale genetic differentiation associated with individual pieces of habitat. Those aggregate up into bigger pieces of stocks that return to individual rivers, and then rivers together produce and support the overall fisheries of bristol bay so the portfolio effect is not a term that we we dreamt up it's a term that we simply borrowed from finances and from other aspects of ecology
0: well it certainly works and it um it it allows (laughs) everyday people like me uh to get their brain around uh why diversification of species Is important, and it's it's very clearly demonstrated in the salmon ecology in Bristol Bay. Um, You know, if you spend any time there, you can certainly see it. And hopefully, in our films, the breach in the wild, you get a a a taste of that as well. But um, how does the portfolio effect benefit people as well as salmon?
1: Yeah. So, so two things Um, before we get to the people, I think there's one other observation that's worth thinking about. Sure. And, and that is that, and, and our long term data collection of Bristol Bay allows us to make this uh, observation and therefore conclusion. And that is that it's really easy to go to a, an individual small stream, for instance, and uh, study it, count the number of fish in it for two, three, four years, as you might do if you were to do an environmental risk assessment of a development project. And it's very likely that you'll see numbers of fish that are below average just because of the random chance of when you measured it. And what we've come to learn with our long-term monitoring is that little pieces of habitat that don't do very much in terms of supporting fish for sometimes for decades, suddenly the suddenly the switch gets flipped on and they become remarkably, again, we use the term productive. They produce a, an incredible amount of fish and they may only be particularly productive for a handful of years before they sort of drop back down to their low productive state. So again, just like your your investment portfolio, you know, a wise investor doesn't dump all their stocks that aren't doing particularly well right now. They hang on to those little pieces because they want to keep the possibility in the game that they may contribute in the future. And again. This analogy works for salmon habitat because in Bristol Bay, the habitat's still there. We don't see it in the lower 48 where we've messed up all the rivers simply because we've taken away many of these options for fish to really flourish. Mm -hmm. um, When the, when they, when the lottery ticket presents itself. So in, in Bristol Bay, we still see all those little pieces and a lot of those little pieces don't do very much in many years and then boom suddenly they are incredibly important and in picking up the slack for some of their neighboring pieces of habitat that for whatever reason failed that year uh, to get to the question of why does it matter to people
0: mm-hmm.
1: i mean it's certainly it's important to scientists because it adds all this complexity that we're trying to understand and we continue to struggle with so it makes our jobs particularly fascinating but from the perspective of fishing communities, the fishing industry, even individual fishers, reliability is something that has tangible social and economic value. So you can think of yourself that, let's say you're offered a job where the um, the average annual salary was $100,000, um, and you're given two options. One is... Every year you get a $100,000 salary, or over the long term, you'll get $100,000 per year, but some years it's going to be 10000 some years it's going to be 200000 other years it'll be 30000 So chances are a lot of people will pick the stable strategy, the one that they can count on. So in the case of fishing communities, um, having reliable returns from year to year, actually has tangible value because if you have to harvest enough fish to put food on the table, to pay the loan on your fishing boat, um, to take your vacation somewhere fun, um, the, the ability to go up to the bay and make a living every year has, has this tangible value to you. So what the portfolio effect does It doesn't wipe out, doesn't reduce all of the variability of um, how many salmon return to Bristol Bay and are available to fisheries. Um, But it certainly reduces that variability and makes it a far more reliable system um, that, that people benefit from. Travel south and go to places like the Sacramento River. And all of this diversity is, not all of it, but a lot of this diversity has been stripped out of it. And, you know, as a long-term average, there's still a phenomenal number of Chinook salmon that return to the Sacramento River, as an example. But it is boom or bust. Every now and then there's a fishery that's open, and there's big Chinook salmon everywhere. And then there's three or four or five years in between where there's so few fish that there's no fishery allowed at all. And then it blows up again. And there's a big, intense fishery. So this is something that we see. Again, we don't understand the specific mechanisms of it. But heavily humanized watersheds appear to lose their reliability in terms of how many fish they produce from year to year. And this seems to be a function of the loss of habitat diversity and the loss of genetic diversity in the salmon that return to those rivers. Bristol Bay still has the full complement of habitat diversity and genetic diversity that, it, that it's probably had for thousands of years. So
0: there's uh, an 800-pound gorilla in the room, and that is the pebble mine. Uh, this is something that you know very well, you've been intimately involved in, I have as well. And certainly the people of Bristol Bay, um, in particular the indigenous community that has been there for over 4,000 years, has been struggling with this proposition of what would be North America's largest open pit gold and copper mine in the headwaters of this incredible fishery that we've been talking about. Um, To kind of boil things down, what we know is that in order for this project to be successful, it would have to be large. It would have to be massive. And um, I just wanted to bring up a little something here. Um, On this show, we look at people working to save the things they love, big or small. And in a Science Magazine article from 2019, Warren Cornwall writes, Schindler's work was the most influential research in terms of how we approach Bristol Bay, says Phil North, an aquatic ecologist who headed EPA's Bristol Bay work before leaving the agency in 2013. In other words, small things matter. So, what I find really interesting is we talk about the vastness of Alaska, the vastness of Bristol Bay, its lakes, its huge rivers. And then we get down into the, the, the tiny things like the, the tiny creeks that are productive one summer, um, like possibly Telerik Creek up in the area where the proposed pebble mine would, would go. Um, why can small things be just as powerful as big things in a place like Bristol Bay? And, um, I mean, even going one step further, like a really small thing, uh, some of your work most recently has been with a very small thing inside of the heads of salmon and it's meant something really big. Can you talk about that a bit?
1: Yeah. The, uh, the question of why the details matter is, um, It's a tough question Um, to use another metaphor. Think about looking at a Renaissance painting and you're standing 20 feet away from that Renaissance painting. um, And you see the landscape, you see the people, you see the scene, and then you take a few steps forward and you look at the same painting from 10 feet away and you start to see some of the intermediate scale details. You know, what the artist would have painted with a smaller brush. And you start to, it's more more detail starts to reveal itself. And you start to get a better and more enriched image of what that painting is actually showing. And then you walk with to within two feet of that painting. And you realize that some of the brushes that were used to finish the details of the painting we're only a couple of hairs wide, and superimposed on the big scale landscape and the intermediate scale uh, images of people and trees and these sort of things are the details of people's eyes and what jewelry they're wearing, etc. So the whole image is really produced by a whole bunch of different sizes of paintbrushes, and chances are that if you took one of those paintings and eliminated all the details that were applied by the tiniest of the brushes you'd have a fundamentally different painting you might still see the landscape and the people that were lying around having a picnic or whatever it might be Um, and as you start eliminating the details the 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 image fundamentally changes so the same i like to think of the same analogy with salmon habitat where yeah you could put a lot of pebble mines in Bristol Bay and you'd still have the mountains in the same places that they are. They may have a few chunks torn out of them from from mining pits and these sort of things, but the basic mountain ranges would still be in their same locations. The big rivers would probably still flow in the places that they do and out to the ocean. But as you got to the finer scale details, it's those finer scale details that are most at risk of being severely um, degraded or, in fact, eliminated from building roads, from digging open pits, from laying down pipelines, um, you name it. Certainly something like Pebble Mine has the potential for large-scale contamination of the watershed. For instance, if one of these uh, pyritic tailings ponds that would have to be there for centuries – After the mine was closed, if one of those, um, if one of the dams collapsed and discharged all that mining waste, you would certainly have potential impacts that would extend for tens, if not more, of kilometers downstream. Um, But we can't forget about all these little details, the little Tulare Creek, the little Lake Beverly, for instance, that if you eliminate them from the landscape, you start to lose this complexity of the overall ecosystem and it's that complexity that provides both this incre- incredible productivity of the ecosystem but also this reliability and the reliability is the fact that diversity stabilizes the overall returns to the ecosystem so the expectation is that uh, industrial activity of the scale of pebble mine, could, in fact, eliminate fish habitat in a few small tributaries, and they're small when you scale them up to all of Bristol Bay. But as we've seen from studies of places elsewhere, small places can produce really big numbers of fish in certain years. And by degrading and eliminating and rubbing out all that complexity, even at small scales, um, the systems just function in a less reliable way. The other thing that's important is that we've learned um, the hard way in places like the Columbia River, uh, in places like coastal Oregon, California, that once you lose that, that raw material of habitat complexity and its associated genetic complexity, it's really expensive to even make a, a serious attempt to get it back. And even if you pour literally tens of millions of dollars into some of these restoration efforts, you never get it back to what it was historically. So those fine-scale details add up to an important ecological uh, service, if you want to call it, that we see at the watershed scale. And once it's gone, it's kind of a one-way trip. I've been reading
0: Robert Michael Pyle's book, Wintergreen, and had um, it's about the Willapa Bay area here in Washington state and which was heavily logged and speaks to what you're talking about. Once something has changed, once it has been altered significantly, whether that's a giant clear cut or a, a giant open pit copper mine or a dam that fundamentally blocks all of the uh, Samonids from returning to their traditional spawning grounds, it's really hard to, replace that or bring it back to its productivity that it was at prior to that work being done and what we tend to do i think is uh people is uh think we're going to make it better with our technology and make it more efficient and that ends up being like we're going to plant one kind of tree to make it more efficient and this sort of flies in the face of this idea of diversification that you've been talking about here and um, I know another part of, of your work has also been dealing with um diversification of geography that where these salmon go in Bristol Bay. And part of that has come out of a tiny little thing called an odolith. Can you tell me what an odolith is and tell us why that's important to this conversation about Bristol Bay?
1: Sure. Um before I get there, Mark, I want to say one other thing in response to what you started with. Mm-hmm. Um You know, it is true that human activities can cause changes to watersheds that affect how many salmon they produce and the types of salmon and how reliable those returns are. Um, But there's a bit of a paradox here in that a naturally functioning salmon ecosystem is continuously changing. You know, salmon are very good. You know, it's one of the hallmarks Mm -hmm. of salmon biology is they – thrive in landscapes that are continuously changing and what's changing is the geomorphology the fact that running water causes erosion and deposition of gravels so a a properly functioning floodplain river is not static by any stretch of the imagination it's continuously changing through time and it's that continual renewal of the habitat as a natural process is what we need to think about maintaining as we protect habitat. That's one of the problems with infrastructure with big mines is that we put human infrastructure, human structures in watersheds to try to prevent this erosion and deposition of gravels. If you spend $10 million buying a road, the last thing in the world you want to do is have the river wash it out, which of course happens from now and then. But if you're going to protect your investment of a road, you're going to bolster that thing up so the river can't wash it out. Similarly, if you build a pipeline to uh, deliver all the natural gas to a big uh, electrical power station to run the mine, you're going to make sure that thing is as stable as is possible. And by imposing stability on the landscape, you take away these dynamic processes that produce this renewal of salmon habitat. And again, that's something that sounds abstract when we consider how do these ecosystems actually work, but this is exactly how salmon ecosystems work. They are far from static. They are continuously changing their dynamic. And one of the things we have to do if we want to keep salmon around for people in the future is allow these ecosystems to be dynamic and change with floods with forest fires in some cases, um, the natural processes that that provide renewal to these ecosystems
0: that poses a problem for people wanting to build or you know increase population in areas that are dynamic. And I think you know that's very clearly we've seen it here in Washington State in the lower forty-eight in our salmon runs down here. And one other thought on that is you know. Um, We have thought down here, uh, white Euro-American colonists who came out here thought they could never fully tame the landscape, that the the forests were too vast, that the salmon numbers were too big, uh, the rivers were too powerful. But we have learned in under 200 years that we were wrong about that, that people were wrong about that. And yet there are still folks in Alaska – and and others that say, well, the, the landscape is just too vast. We couldn't ever really make a dent in it. But what I'm hearing from you is that even if you don't, in one fell swoop, damage the entire landscape with a massive catastrophic, say, tailings dam failure from a giant open pit copper mine, you are still, by virtue of trying to control the erosion, control the land management quote, land management. Um, And that is deleterious in and of itself.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that statement. Um, You know, the the I think the right way to think about uh, um, a big development uh, project is to think about what it does to the the risk profile of the salmon stocks. And, you know, in their purely natural condition, there's a lot of risk, In how many fish return to Bristol Bay every year. There's highs, there's lows. These are a function of diseases and population dynamics of the salmon, of the weather and the climate that they encounter. So there's risk associated with it, um, with how many fish come back to these watersheds every year. What we need to think about when we assess a development project is how much does it change the risk profile? Because It is very possible that the pebble mine could go in, and for the next 500 years, everything is hunky-dory, and the same number of salmon come back to Bristol Bay. That's a possibility, Mm. but that's not the right way to look at it. The right way to look at it is ask, does putting a huge project on the landscape make the probability of a catastrophic collapse more likely? Does it change the risk profile to the ecosystem? And that's where we start looking at various threats from sulfides to roads changing erosional patterns um, to dewatering streams. And you start adding up all those new risks, and it quickly becomes apparent that a project the size of Pebble distinctly changes the risk profile of bad things happening to the salmon stock I'm not sure how I got on that tangent, but there you go.
0: <laughs> I, that's a good tangent. Uh, we, we're we in this moment where there is a bit of pause. Um, people that have been working on the Save Bristol Bay project for a long time, most notably the Indigenous people that get up every day and face the prospect of a giant open pit copper mine in their headwaters, have worked on it for decades and right now, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, uh, back in November, put uh, denied the p- proposed permit for the dredge and fill operation um, that is critical for the pebble mine. They have appealed this decision, um, and uh, we are now in a moment with a new administration, and um, there's still, once again, some um, question about the immediate and the intermediate future for Bristol Bay. Now, the folks that would build the mine contend over and over again that a, a mine and a fishery can coexist. What is your contention with that statement? And um, where do you see the way forward for Bristol Bay from in the immediate and in the intermediate?
1: So, you know, I don't think the question is whether a mine and a fishery can coexist. A mine and a fishery can coexist. But that statement cannot be taken out of context. The question is what kind of fishery can coexist? And the question is really whether the mine or any other mine or any other development activity compromises the fishery that exists now and that has persisted there as a commercial fishery for 120 years. There will be a Bristol Bay fishery, even if there's a pebble mine. Eugashic River is in a totally different watershed. There's no reason why pebble would affect that uh, salmon run. But at the scale of Bristol Bay, the question is whether the fishery would be different and whether the mine would have negative impacts on it. And again, this is something that we can't really predict with high precision, but we need to ask whether this project poses significant risks To fish, fisheries, and people. And two things. First of all, everything in life has risk associated with it. So as soon as someone tells you that we can do this massive project that's going to look like this and we can conclude with full certainty that there's no risk, well, they got to be bullshitting. There's just no way that there's no risks. Um, As a scientist, it's not my role. To say what an acceptable level of risk is, it's the people of Bristol Bay, the people who rely on this resource, um, to the and their decision makers to really decide. All right, how much risk is too much? This is where the scientists can help illuminate how different, how big these risks of a mine might be. But it's not our it's not our role to decide what's acceptable or not. Um, personally. And professionally, I get my hackles up when I see what is supposed to be a proper risk assessment that leads to the conclusion that there's zero tangible risk to the to the uh, fisheries and to the habitat that supports those fisheries, because that's simply not a logical outcome. If you uh, admit that you're going to drain dozens of miles of streams and you have the uh, requirement that you store millions of tons of toxic wastes. you know you start adding these things up and you quickly realize it's absurd to say there's no risk to fisheries. Um, so something's going on and this is the, this is where we need to challenge that something. Um, hmm. because right now it, it's the logical conclusions just simply aren't adding up.
0: I love that you come from a scientific background. Your dad worked on water issues in Canada, and uh, I learned recently that he actually worked uh, as an advisor to Neil Young on a on tour at one point. And uh, I, I know you grew up around science and and the outdoors and the natural world, and that obviously had to have a, a large effect on you. But in Looking as objectively as you can um, back, how much nurture and how much nature was affecting your uh, choice to be a scientist and especially one that works with water and salmon issues?
1: Well, that's a tough question. I mean, clearly, if you know, you get a side by side, there's a lot of nature there (laughs) um, in terms of how we look and how we act Mm -hmm. and these sort of things. Um, There's a lot of nurture too. Um, and it's, uh, it's really about, um, you know, what I was exposed to in terms of opportunity, in terms of getting outside, in terms of, um, you know, being interested in people's welfare, um, Mm-hmm. It's uh yeah. He's he was a great role model. I never really wanted to be a scientist until I went off to college and fumbled around uh, for a few years and realized, wow, this is a potential uh, career that can be interesting, can be fun, and and can be important. Um, so it took me a while to get there. I mean, what teenage boy wants to be like his dad? Um, a lot of them don't. And <laughs> I was one of them. Um, sure. But in retrospect, I. Um, You know, I grew up loving to be outside. I grew up um, curious about how the world worked. Um, And those things had, yeah, huge, obviously lasting uh, impressions on me.
0: I love scientists. I love hanging around you guys. I look forward to it every time I get to visit. I'm hoping we can visit this summer, uh, you know, depending on things, COVID, etc. I find a... Comfort in your direct observation and the order of things as they are in the physical world and the enumeration of those things. But I wanted to kind of get on this human track a little bit with you because, you, guess what? You are a human being. You're capable of love and grief and wonder and all those human things that we all are capable of. Um, and I know you've been criticized by the folks that are mind proponents um, in Bristol Bay for your activism in science as they have defined it. Um, I, I suppose with this idea that science needs to be detached and completely clinical. Um, but you've been outspoken, uh, outspoken um, about Bristol Bay and what's at stake there. Why have you spoken out to save Bristol Bay the way that it is Um in your work through your work and uh why have you been vocal
1: yeah it's um good question as well mark and uh you know as i said earlier um i i believe it's not our role as scientists to make decisions you know decisions need to be made by elected officials who represent the people that voted for them um I believe the role of scientists is to provide the knowledge that educates decision-makers so they can make good decisions that are based on something rather than a knee-jerk reaction. I believe it's up to scientists to help educate the public so they understand what they have at stake, both in terms of opportunities, but also what they may lose if a certain decision is made. Um, we, um, you know, we all have passions. So I certainly have passion for Bristol Bay because I love the place and I enjoy being out there. And I consider myself, um, you know, one of the lucky few who does get to, to call it home for part of the year and to to, to pursue my science there. Um, so I have passion for Bristol Bay in that sense. Um, with my ad, with my advocacy, you know, what I have really tried to stick to is advocating for good science. Certainly the science that I have produced does is not particularly favorable to a mine. Um, But what's important to me is that if there is going to be a science-based decision about whether to permit this or not, that the best available science is brought to the table. And my passion gets flared up even more when I see people rolling out what they claim is the world's best science to associate risks and you don't have to look at it for more than a couple of mi- minutes and realize it's not legitimate science. It's not transparent. It's not rigorous. Um, and that's where, again, I um, have become outspoken. It's not really to challenge the mine, it's to challenge the science that's being pushed to support a particular decision. It's clear that there will be some individuals, some of them are Bristol Bay residents, that would benefit from this mine. Um, But those views absolutely have to be balanced against the other people out there who stand to distinctly lose from a project like this. And I don't envy the policymaker who has to decide whether it's a yes or whether it's a no, but if I were that policymaker, I would want to do everything in my power to arm myself with the best information about the pros and the cons about making this decision. And, um, this is where I believe responsible scientists operate is by informing people of what these trade-offs look like. Um, yeah, some, I'm fiery. Sometimes my uh, emotions get the best of me, and I'll yell at someone who is saying something stupid. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure to make the decision, and I shouldn't be. <laughs> neither neither should any other scientist. Someone else has to make those decisions, but if they're smart about it, they, they better demand the best information possible.
0: Well, we have a new um, potential head of the EPA, And we have a new administration in the White House, and I know that there is discussion about the need for uh, a veto from the EPA uh, using the 404C Clean Water Act. And also on the table, the way forward for Bristol Bay is through permanent protection uh, through a National Fisheries Act, as it's being called potentially right now, it would be called the Jay and Bella Hammond National Fisheries Area, I believe. Um, do you feel like this is realistic and uh, in in its possibility of being achieved? And firstly, and secondly, do you feel like this is adequate protection for a place like Bristol Bay, moving into the more long term?
1: I can't really speak to the to the realities of the politics of this um, it's easy to recognize that this you know to provide permanent protection to Bristol Bay is a huge ask um, it's a checkerboard of land ownership different different state federal and private jurisdictions it's going to take an immense amount of coordination to provide protection to water and fish and people across this really huge area. Um, Should we do it? You know, that's a place where we can start. And I think the information that should be used to inform that question is um, the reality that Bristol Bay is, is truly a unique ecosystem at a global scale. There's no other Bristol Bay. Um, There are places that resemble it in terms of uh, being productive, in terms of fish, in terms of having a working ecosystem. It's not like it's a national park where people peer in through the fences to see the wild. Um, People are out there on the landscape, um, fishing, observing wildlife, harvesting these fish. You know, people have been killing fish here for thousands of years. So when we talk about protection, it's about p- keeping people in the game here. Um, so I think those are the motivations, or part of the motivations, we should use to think about um, trying to achieve what at this point seems like a would be a monumental feat. Four hundred four C would certainly is certainly a more tangible short term. Or medium-term solution to protect some of the watershed. But we have learned over and over and over again throughout the United States, throughout Canada, throughout every other part of the world that we're developing, is that it's easy to fundamentally change these places and then literally never get them back. So Alaska and the United States, in this case, are in mm-hmm. this truly unique situation where they still have the opportunity to um, keep this landscape functioning the way it probably has for thousands of years. Um, You often hear the argument, well, we can't afford to do that. It's going to cost too much. You know, we need development out there, these sort of things. And that's true. There are certainly limited economic opportunities for people in Bristol Bay. But... As an economic engine, Bristol Bay is also remarkable. You know, every year there may be, currently there may be, you could argue up to say $10,000 that go into science, management, conservation, etc. of salmon. And as you know well, the fishery produces probably over a billion dollars of economic activity that extends far beyond Bristol Bay every year. So if you think about return on your investment, you invest a few million bucks a year and you get upwards of a billion, that's a pretty good return on the investment. Compare that to the Columbia River. The Columbia River actually still supports some quite valuable fisheries, both tribal fisheries and sport fisheries. Um, That generates hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue every year. But management, restoration, uh, rehabilitation, all of these things cost the taxpayer or the ratepayer hundreds of millions of dollars every year. So the return on the investment on a river like the Columbia is probably less than one. More goes into propping up those fish and trying to restore the habitat than those fish generate in terms of economic revenues. So decision makers like talking about jobs. They like talking about economic activity. And we simply can't forget about how remarkably valuable, the current state of the situation is in Bristol Bay. And it's, you know, it's supported by a naturally functioning ecosystem. There's certainly lots of room for improvement, um, to improve equity of access to the fishery and equity of the distribution of resources. Um, So it's not to say that the fishery is perfect, because there are still a lot of people who have a difficult Time getting into that fishery and benefiting from it. Um, So there are things we can invest in to improve the current situation, but um, it's a massive economic engine in its own right at the present. And that also should be recognized as we talk about protecting this landscape. It's not just about um, protecting it for the sake of it being there. It's much more than that. It uh, employs... Tens of thousands of people, at least that many more, depend on it for um, nutritional and cultural values. You um, know, the list of benefits of what the current system supports is really long and and very impressive. So, any action or oh, just to, yeah, just to finish the your question is just any uh, effort to provide permanent protection um, needs to think about the fact that it's not just about protecting water and fish. It's about protecting water, fish, people, livelihoods, cultures, and economies. It's the whole ball of wax. And as a result, if you think about pros and cons of providing some protection to these systems, um, now again, it might change the answer that different decision makers may arrive at.
0: Well, I think this is an excellent place to park the conversation about Bristol Bay for today. Uh, I would love to reserve the right to meet up again down the trail if we can down the stream, um, and yeah, down the stream is even better. And I know that you know <laughs> we've talked many times about there is that ore body's not going anywhere. There's always going to be a discussion about this place, and uh, so I'm going to wrap with uh, with this. Just a kind of a little rapid fire, couple questions for you. Um, in a, this is a fantastical scenario now, mind you, but if your house were burning down or your cabin, God forbid, and let's knock on wood, that's not going to happen. But, um, what's the one physical thing you would save out of that, that blaze? If you could, if you could grab one thing before you, other than your loved ones, of course, that's those folks are, and critters are,
1: are first. I don't know. Most of what I care about is outside my house. So, (laughs) um, I'm not sure I have a good answer for you. I think you just gave me one. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's my answer then.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Well, and, and if you had, uh, two metaphysical things about your life, your integrity, your work, your work, your spirit, what, what would those be that you could, uh, rescue from a
1: blaze? Well, I think we need to, uh, you know, we need to be confident in humans to do the right thing. I mean, humans show over and over the ability to do the wrong thing and make bad decisions that harm other people and harm the the natural world. But we also show immense capacity for learning and for doing the right thing. Um, And that's why I have hope and optimism for protecting a place like Bristol Bay. Um, We have the capacity to do the right thing here. And um, I think we should all be optimistic that we can actually pull the trigger and do it. That's one. Th-
0: that's, uh, that's hope. That sounds like hope to me.
1: It's hope. And we also should be able to learn from our mistakes. Um, we're often stubborn and are unwilling to learn from our mistakes, but we have made a lot of mistakes with, with waterways, with uh, natural ecosystems elsewhere. And we are in this incredibly luxurious position now of asking, Do we want to make all those ridiculous mistakes from which we've never recovered elsewhere and do it again here? Um, And it's not just Bristol Bay. It's a lot of Western Alaska. It's a lot of Alaska, period. In fact, it's a lot of the North, Northern Canada, even Northern Russia. There's still a lot of opportunities out there to make decisions that we have made poorly in other places.
0: Lastly, Daniel, is there anything that you would leave in a blaze whether that's part of your nature or human nature or a physical thing that you would want to see
1: purified or gone besides dirty dishes, <laughs> not a dishman. man, <laughs> uh, not sure.
0: All right. Well, that that's also valid. And um, so to, to close this out here for now, I just want to thank you for jumping on. Uh, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. I learned so much. And you have such a clear way of demonstrating what's at stake in a place like Bristol Bay, using terms that, that I can understand, that that our listeners can understand. So I thank you for that. Dr. Daniel Schindler, uh, if folks want to get involved with your work or see what's going on with the work that you do through the University of Washington, where can people go to follow along
1: uh, probably the best way is to google alaska salmon program at the university of Washington, and we have a website that highlights a little bit of what we do and has individual contacts for myself and and our staff and other faculty that are easily followed up on great and folks you can always
0: uh follow along w- with information in the links to this show in our show notes also at avaswild.com and of course Daniel is in the wild the uh feature documentary uh most recently about Bristol Bay that we did together Daniel thank you again for showing up today uh, appreciate you so much and hope to see you this summer
1: thanks a lot Mark it's a great uh, idea you're pursuing here and uh yeah you're making a huge mark yourself thank you sir all right till next time Adios.
0: How do you say
1: what you love? How do you say what you love?
0: Thank you for listening to Save What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation, and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.